This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. today is a former federal prosecutor, uh, unafraid to call it uh, as he sees it. That's one reason I really, really like having him on. You are welcome to agree or disagree with his analysis. I just thought we would all benefit from hearing his answers to what I imagine are some of your questions, and I know that they are some of my questions. And I'm also quite sure that Andy McCarthy follows politics. I mean, it's hard to not follow politics and be alive in 2023, but I'm almost equally sure he did not go to law school or join the U.S. Attorney's Office to specialize in politics. So to the extent politics makes a legal question relevant or not relevant, I will ask it. But beyond that, I'm going to leave the raw political analysis to others and focus on the law and the facts as best we can. And then I will I will also add. Those of you who listen to my podcast know my wife knows a lot about the Bible. Mary Langston knows a lot about the Bible. I tend to get it confused with some other things that I have heard, but I'm going to take a shot at remember. I think there's something about being a time and a season for all things under the sun. There's a time and a season, I guess, to inflame people, um, but there's also a time to educate them. And there's a time to ratify what people already believe, but there's also a time to challenge them. And there's a time to explain, and then there's our obligation to try to understand when somebody who knows what they're talking about does explain it. So with that, welcome to you, former AUSA, Andy McCarthy. Trey, great to be with you, and I so appreciate what you just said. I, I have to say, when I was a, I was a conservative lawyer and prosecutor in New York, my best friends in the U.S. Attorney's Office were liberal Democrats. And I don't remember, other than getting beers on a Friday night, I don't remember any of that having anything to do with the day-to-day of the job, which I think we all took pride in trying to make as clinical an exercise as it it ought to be. It really shouldn't matter what the politics of your prosecutor are any more than the politics of your plumber, you know. Um, so I, I appreciate that because I've always thought these are things that you can check at the door and just try to figure out what's what. You know, Andy, I think we're going to have to if we're going to make it long term. I just I, I don't think um, I think prosecutors have an obligation to check it themselves. Uh, and to your point, the guy that sat beside me at the U.S. attorney's office, I had no idea his politics. I suspected them because he went to Princeton, but I didn't know. Until I ran for district attorney as a Republican, and I'd left the U.S. attorney's office because you had to to run in a partisan election, and I got a check from him, a big check, (laughs) and a note that said, you are the first Republican I have ever donated to. Oh, wow. Uh, You are right. That is what made that job special. Um, All right, I will dive right into this, and I want us to try to imagine where we can that the indictment reads 
United States versus Jane or John Doe, or United States versus president without a name, to the extent we can. And then if there are facts that that tend to influence your opinion because it happens to be President Trump, you you are welcome to bring that in. But I, I just want, like, we'll start with this. Who creates classified material? Who designates material classified? Generally, classified information is designated as such by an intelligence agency or intelligence official who has authority to do that under the executive order that uh, has been. I think it's it goes back trade of I want to say Eisenhower, but it's been uh, it's been tweaked over the years by various uh, presidents. I think the last time it was was under uh, Obama, and I don't think that was a very major tweak. But there are certain officials in the executive branch and uh, in the agencies that are basically referred to in federal law as the intelligence community. There are about 17 of them. Uh, Post 9-11, there was an effort to try to bring them under the uh, authority of the uh, of the National Intelligence Office. It used to be that the uh, the CIA was nominally the head of the intelligence community, but it was too many hats for the director of the CIA to wear to be both um, the operational head of the CIA with all that entails in the way of operations and intelligence analysis and run the vast U.S. intelligence community. So now we have 17 different agencies. You can quibble over whether uh, adding yet another bureaucracy atop the ones we already had made things more or less efficient, Uh, but it certainly did give us more authorized individuals. They can designate secrets, um, and the president is different from any other official in the executive branch uh, in that only the president can declassify anything. So, for example, the head of the CIA can declassify information that the CIA has classified. If the FBI has classified information, the CIA needs the FBI's sign-off to declassify it if the CIA wanted to do that. The president, however, who is the only official in the executive branch who actually has power, everybody else in the executive branch is a a delegate of the president uh, who exercises the president's authority at the president's pleasure, which is why the president can remove anyone at will. The president is the only official who can declassify anything. All right. Let's imagine that you are the president and you want to see something from the Department of Defense or from, I I assume, the State Department can classify material, a CIA, fill in the blank. You're the president. You want to see it. Walk us through how you gain access to that. Is there just one copy of it or there multiple copies? Let's say you want to see a battle plan that we're about to invade Lithuania. And you want to see that, which I don't recommend, but but if we do invade them, you want to see it. How, how do you get access to that? So, Trey, there's a way that there's the way that things are supposed to work in theory. And then there is the way they appear to work in practice, as we see every time we have to look under the rock at the sort of question you just asked. So what the intelligence community would like you to believe is that they manage well 
the inventory of actual classified documents that they have. But I don't think they manage them well. And what we've learned as things have become more digital over time, they manage them even less well than they used to. So I think that it, just to give people an idea, there are nearly 5 million people in the United States who have security clearances between government officials, defense contractors, uh, and, and other contractors and the like. So the reason we're so bad at keeping secrets is we have too many things that are classified and we have too many people who have access to classified information to the point where if you've actually ever had to do an investigation involving a leak of really any information, but, but classified information as well, those are very difficult investigations to do, especially once temporarily you get removed uh, for any length of time from the time of the actual leak, because it's so diffuse and there's so many people who have access, it's ju it just gets very difficult to, uh, to track it down. So um, what I have learned over the last couple of years is that there's three main, I mean, I've always known this, but to your question in particular about how many copies of documents there are, there are three main classification categories. There's top secret, secret, and confidential. And those are categories, uh, the differences in the categories are based essentially on how catastrophic it would be for national security if the document fell into the wrong, or the information fell into the wrong hands. So the more damaging it is to the country, the higher the, the classification level. And I think what we've learned uh, is that with respect to, uh, to secret and confidential information, which are the two lowest levels of classified information, they are not good at all at limiting the number of copies that are made and recording the distribution of those documents which is why we, we, as we follow the news over the last few years, we find that, uh, you know, documents are popping up in the, uh, in, in the private property and private locations of former government officials. You would think that that couldn't happen because if they did a good inventory of them, they would know stuff was missing and they'd go claim it. But the problem is that they don't have a good handle on how many, uh, copies of those documents there are. They purport to do a careful job with respect to classified to top secret information, and in particular, top secret information that has additional limiting restrictions on it in terms of who has a need to know it and, and has access to it. One of the big misunderstandings that we see in a lot of the coverage about national security information and national defense is that if a person has a security clearance, we needn't worry about whether that person had access to various documents. That's not true. With respect to most of the most important top secret information, even among people who have security clearances, that is limited dissemination material. So even if you, Trey, had a top secret clearance, if it was a special access program and you weren't read into it, it would be a problem to disclose that information to you before you were read into it. Those documents, they are supposed to keep, according to their own account of it, this is the, the top officials in the, uh, uh, in the intelligence community, 
they would have you believe that they are very careful with respect to those documents about how many copies there are and recording who has them and whether they've been returned or not. But it just seems to be, you know, all you need to do is read the news the last couple of years and you know that can't possibly be right. Because again, not only have classified documents as a general class been found uh, in the private locations of former government officials, invariably when that seems to happen, at least with the stories that make the news, what we learn is that some of it is like the, you know, the crown jewels of the uh, of the intelligence vault. So I, I have to think that this is a pretty incompetent system just from the outside looking in. We're going to take a quick break. More of my conversation with Andy McCarthy is coming up. All right. You, you, you have more than touched on this, but I think it is so on the minds and, and of our listeners that I'm going to, at the risk of there being objection, ask and answered. I'm going to ask it again. I want you to assume that I'm going to pick on two of my friends. I, I want you to assume that Andy McCarthy is the president and that you ask John Radcliffe and Mike Pompeo to bring you two different pieces of classified information. Uh, one is your uh, head of is your ODNI, your, your head of your national intelligence, which you made reference to. That's the post 9-11 group. And Ratcliffe was that. And then Pompeo was the secretary of state and the head of the CIA. So they both bring you things. I think most of us were under the impression that there's like an inventory. There's a log that says, OK, Radcliffe went to discuss with President McCarthy today X. So we would know on your last day in office that we needed to to maybe get that back from you if he dropped it off. But I'm assuming that's not the way it works. I don't think so. I don't. Uh, my impression is that, number one, the the habits of regiment probably vary from president to president. And to I mean, obviously, the uh, the officials, whether it's Ratcliffe and Pompeo or, or other officials, I think there's a limit to how much discipline they can impose on the system, depending on who the president is. I think in some administrations, Trey, the chief of staff uh, and the uh, and the secretary to the chief of staff have a much tighter grasp of the information flow than in other administrations. For example, my impression, and this is just, you know, I, ha I had a little bit of a peek inside this, but not much. My impression is that the, the Bush 43 administration was a pretty tight run ship with respect to national defense information, which would make sense because they were in power during the outbreak of war. They did a shift of, of uh, a period of time when the Justice Department was kind of the kind of the, the uh, tip of the sphere in counterterrorism. They tried to move it back to Washington and in particular to the administration, because if you're going to treat it as a wartime issue it's a whole different ballgame right so i think between the chiefs of staff that that trump had and having someone like kavanaugh who's now justice kavanaugh who was the um the secretary to the uh, chief of staff and managed the paper flow i i think that gets handled pretty efficiently then there are other administrations where you have a lot of um you either uh have a situation where they don't prioritize national security as much as other issues, or 
um, they're not as careful about paper flow or there's a lot of turnover. Um, but I think that that in those situations, things don't get handled and recorded the way uh, they would in an administration that made that a priority. But I do think it, it varies from president to president. We switch gears. What is a presidential record? I have found with that question, since it's come up in um, it's come up so often in the last week plus, uh, it's almost easier to say what isn't one than what is one, because we have an act that's called the Presidential Records Act that defines what presidential records are. But it takes pains to exclude certain government records from that. And in connection with the recent indictment, the most important exclusion, obviously, because we're talking about classified information here, are agency records. So to the extent that the act that we're talking about, the Presidential Records Act, defines what a presidential record is, it tells you up front what it's not, which is that it's not the records that are generated by agencies. And they go to uh, great lengths not only uh, to spell that out, but also to refer you to other definitions in federal law so that you know exactly what they're talking about when they say an agency and exactly what they're talking about when they say a record. So we can comfortably say that records that have been generated by the agencies of the intelligence community, which which reflect, for example, uh, intelligence analyses or operational details or methods and sources of intelligence gathering, uh, those would not be presidential records. Now, here's where it gets complicated. The president can, according to the Presidential Records Act, presidential records are um, documentary and similar type materials. So the, the broad definition of documentary includes things like tape recordings, right, that are generated during the presidency. The president can both generate those documents. When I say the president, I mean the White House, the White House staff, the people who are working directly for the president in the day-to-day -day administration of the government. Uh, they generate those materials, but they can also receive them. And so, for example, to go back to your uh, original example, John Ratcliffe or Mike Pompeo show up to a meeting with the president, say a morning security meeting, and present him with a document. The president looks at the document, not only reads it, but annotates it, makes some notes that he thinks are important. By the act of doing that, that has now become a presidential record. It starts out as just an agency record, but now it is both an agency record and a presidential record. Now, importantly, Trey, what that means is not supposed to be an escape hatch to turn it into personal property that he can keep. What it means is we now have not one, but two bases for this to be kept in government archives. On the one hand, it's a presidential record and it remains that. And on the other hand, the annotated copy is a presidential record, which has to be archived uh, in the National Archives for presidential records. Presidential records under the definition are all documentary materials that are reflective of the governance carried out by the president, whether it relates to uh, national security duties, the ordinary duties of executing and, and enforcing the laws of the United States, and even the ministerial and ceremonial duties 
of the presidency. It's a broad definition because the effort post-Watergate, the Presidential Records Act is 1978, the effort was to change the presumption in law that records that were generated basically by the White House during the course of a presidency were the property of the president, which they were up until the Nixon administration, and now were to be pursuant to this act of Congress, the property of the United States. So the idea is to capture everything that could be in the way of an official document that reflects the way the presidency was carried out. That is, reflects everything from the most important matters of governance to the least important matters of governance, as long as they're matters of governance. And what's excluded from this definition of presidential records is not just agency records, but there is a category which is called personal records. And what personal records are, are items in the nature of a journal or a diary that the president keeps for his own uh, personal purposes uh, that do not become part of the archives of the United States. Although there are provisions in the law um, which, which are aimed at the potential that the archivist and the president could disagree on what is a personal record that the president wants to keep. In other words, the, the plan of Congress was that the president was going to work together with the archivist uh, in good faith to figure out what should be archived and what the president could keep as personal property. Uh, the complication in all this, I may be jumping ahead of where you want to go now, but the complication in all this is we have a District of Columbia court case, which suggests that during the course of the presidency, the president uh, under the Presidential Records Act is the final determinator of what is personal and what is presidential. I think that is an overinterpretation of that case because it, it, it's really defied by the text of the statute. I do want to ask you about that, uh, and I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit, but just so people know, just to, to kind of portend, uh, that is a, a, a district court, I guess, uh, order that is often cited by uh, the president's, uh, President Trump's supporters, including, um, I guess, the head of Judicial Watch. It, it is... I've read the language. I don't know whether it was was it appealed and 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 upheld. Was it not appealed? I believe it was not appealed. The case is called Judicial Watch versus uh, <clears throat> NARA, which is the National. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the, yeah, the National Archives and Records Administration, uh, which the shorthand for which we call uh, the National Archives. So I think in that case, Trey, there was no reason for an appeal. I mean, I guess Judicial Watch could have appealed. But the thing was, the Justice Department had argued on behalf of the National Archives that President Clinton implicitly made a decision about 79 tape recordings that had been in his possession but were never archived, that they were private records or personal records rather than presidential records. And I think what people need to understand here, I think we do need to distinguish because uh, this is in these kinds of cases, this is always important. This is a case that is a legal matter that came up in a political context. 
And the political context here is that President Clinton and a, uh, a historian named Taylor Branch, who's a prominent uh, historian, uh, my friend Rich Lowry informed me, I was embarrassed that I didn't know this, but had written a, a three-volume uh, biography, I believe, of Martin Luther King, which is, which is probably the best uh, biography of Dr. King. He and Clinton decided to collaborate together on a history of the Clinton administration. And during the course of that eight years, they made these 79 recordings. Uh, evidently, Judicial Watch realized that these existed probably because um, Branch went ahead with the publication of the book, which I think came out like in 2009 or 2010. But Judicial Watch asked the National Archives upon discovering that these tapes existed to reclaim them. That was in 2009. Now, just so people understand, in 2009, just to, to set the stage, by then, President Clinton had been out of office for a decade. He had been a um, two-term president who was still very popular, uh, particularly among Democrats. In 2009, we had a new Democratic administration that became a, a, a two-term presidency. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States at the time had been the Deputy Attorney General in the Clinton administration. Uh, the president was the husband, well, President Clinton, rather, was the husband of the then Secretary of State. Uh, and the Democrats were in hammerlock control of Congress. So under these circumstances, if the National Archives 10 years later did not want to go back to President Clinton and say, give us the tapes, there wasn't really anyone in government who was going to turn around and tell them they had to go do that, right? The, the Justice Department didn't have any interest uh, in doing this. Going to Congress would not have been helpful. Uh, and those are really the two avenues that are available to the National Archives if they're trying to get stuff back. Importantly, I should have mentioned this when you asked me about the Presidential Records Act before. Uh, importantly, when Congress enacted the Presidential Records Act, it did not put any civil or criminal enforcement measures in the act. So NARA itself, the National Archives itself, is powerless to do anything but nudge the former presidents. They can't force them to do anything. If they want to try to get them to surrender documents that they don't think the president should have maintained or retained, uh, they have to either go to the Justice Department and the and the incumbent administration to get them to use their uh, criminal and civil enforcement remedies, if there is one that applies, or there's a provision where they can go to Congress. I think the Oversight Committee is the committee that has uh, jurisdiction over the National Archives. But barring that, they don't really have any teeth themselves. Uh, and Congress, I, I think probably when Congress enacted this um, Presidential Records Act post Watergate, I think it was enough of a sea change to go from this idea that everything was everything was the president's property to this idea that everything's the property of the United States, that they didn't think it was at that point in time it was necessary or appropriate to to go the route of let's have criminal enforcement measures and civil enforcement measures. They obviously thought about them because this is post Watergate. And part of the reason the tapes, the Nixon tapes were important was even though Nixon had been pardoned, 
those tapes were still relevant to other prosecutions that were ongoing at the time. Uh, but they didn't put those kind of remedies in. And I think with the case that we're talking about has been overinterpreted, this this uh, Judicial Watch versus NARA. There's a fellow who uh, is at Judicial Watch who was the lawyer who handled that case, who wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. And what he said is that the, the court in this case ruled that the government was out of luck. If President Clinton didn't want to give the tapes back, he, he didn't have to give the tapes back. And that's not what the judge said in the case. What the judge said was that NARA was out of luck. It didn't say that NARA couldn't have turned to some other organ of the government. And the reason I just lay out the background of what was going on in 2009, this case was decided, I think, finally in 2012, but it, the litigation went from 2009 uh, to 2012. The reason I lay out the political context is just to explain to the listener that there wasn't really much NARA could have done, even if they had wanted to harass Clinton at that point, because no one else in the government would have been interested in taking up that battle. All right, let me ask you a summary question, and then I'm going to move to another act. If I understand you correctly, let's assume that you're the president and Pompeo and Ratcliffe bring you top secret material. The fact that you possess it, review it, look at it, does not transform that document into a presidential record. Correct. I have control. I have dominion. I don't have ownership. The uh, The materials are the property of the United States. At the time when I am the chief executive of the United States, I get to say what happens to them. I have unilateral power even to declassify them. Although I, I should point out, uh, since we've been we've been talking about a case that's uh, that's been brought under what's known as the Espionage Act, uh, that you know the fact that something is classified or declassified is not dispositive of whether it's covered under the under the Espionage Act. Well, I, I know you'll probably want to talk about that as well, but I'm just trying to distinguish now between control and ownership. The documents belong to the people of the United States through their government. The president gets to say what happens to them in that with with that understanding while he is president, but he doesn't own them and never owns them and they're not his personal property. And the fact that President McCarthy during that meeting with Ratcliffe and Pompeo draws a, a cartoon because he's bored with the briefing, and he draws a cartoon, a caricature of Pompeo and Ratcliffe, and the margin of that top-secret classified document may convert it to classified and a presidential record, but it does not declassify that document or turn it into a personal record. Is that fair to say? Correct. All right. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Espionage Act. What is it, and are there different levels of intent? Yes, the Espionage Act, uh, it's almost unfortunate that, um, that, it, that it's given that name because it covers a lot of ground that isn't what we traditionally think of as espionage. I ran into this issue, uh, Trey, more years ago than I'd care to cop to um, because I prosecuted terrorists uh, in the early to mid-'90s under a law, a civil war era law known as seditious conspiracy. And 
It seems long ago and far away now, but back then the word sedition got everybody's hackles up because it was um, because of the connotation of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were uh, fairly infamous late 18th century um, set of laws that it, the the sedition aspect of it basically was was uh, ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The the alien parts of the acts are still actually good law. But back then, people were very upset that we brought something that had been in mothballs for a long time that was known as the uh, seditious conspiracy statute. But what I charged them with was conspiracy to levy war against the United States, because while sedition appeared in the title of the statute, it didn't appear in any of the charging language. And the law says that it doesn't really matter what a statute is called. It, what matters in terms, especially criminal statutes, which have higher due process requirements to be clear so that the average person can understand what the law prohibits. What matters, the whole ball game is what's in the charging language, not what the title of the statute is. Here, with the Espionage Act, we're talking about something which is even one remove away from that in the sense that the Espionage Act came into uh, American law in the First World War. It's uh, uh, under uh, President Woodrow Wilson. And it entered into federal law a series of provisions that were, were aimed at the protection of national security information. And I want to say there's probably, if you break out every subsection and subpart of every subsection, th there's probably, conservatively speaking, maybe 10 or 12 different offenses that you could, you could make, maybe even more than that. At the highest level of these offenses are the kinds of behavior that we think of as espionage, where you have government officials who bore into the intelligence community, filch documents, and then intentionally give them to an enemy of the United States in order to harm the country. That's in there, but it's at the top. And then at the bottom, we have other offenses that are aimed at government officials who are careless in carrying out their obligation to safe keep information that they've been trusted with, which is not traditional espionage, but is in American law because of the Espionage Act. The reason I say it's one step removed even from seditious conspiracy is in federal law, at least seditious conspiracy is still the title of the of the criminal statute where that applies. With respect to the Espionage Act, I believe the title, the Espionage Act is codified at, at Section 793 of the Federal Penal Code, which is Title 18. And I believe the title of the statute is something along the lines of transmitting national defense information. In other words, it doesn't even say espionage in the title of the statute in federal law. So the word really doesn't appear in the statute. And again, it's a sliding scale of these offenses that go from what you traditionally think of as espionage as the very most severe offenses down to basically government officials and former officials who mishandle classified information. It's unusual at that low level in that it's one of the few federal criminal offenses that we prosecute people for for less than what's traditional criminal intent. Usually in the criminal law, we don't punish people or prosecute people unless they can be shown to have acted unlawfully, willfully, knowingly, intentionally. Uh, those are the common she enter or mens rea 
uh, requirements. In the Espionage Act, at the low level of offenses, we punish people or prosecute people who have acted grossly negligently in mishandling classified information. And what that can mean in terms of mishandling is uh, taking it from a, its place of safekeeping, storing it in a place where it's not authorized to be, allowing somebody who doesn't have a clearance to see it, uh, carelessly causing it to be lost, abstracted, and what have you. And in, in that statute, we prosecute people for negligence. It's, it's gross negligence in this instance for a very specific reason. I'm bringing this out. You'll remember this much better than I do. But I, I um, remember after the Hillary Clinton emails escapade, Jim Comey, who was then the FBI director, came in to testify. And one of the, one of the things he said that, that rubbed me really the wrong way was uh, that there would have been a constitutional problem prosecuting uh, Mrs. Clinton in that instance for uh, negligence because we're we're doing criminal law here. and We don't do negligence. That's the civil law. And I remember listening to that and wondering, you know, had this guy who I was a prosecutor with for many years in New York um, and who had served at very high levels in the Bush Justice Department and then was the FBI director, which would have been astonishing to me had he not heard that every jurisdiction in America has a negligent homicide statute. So the idea that we never do negligence in the criminal context just was wrong. And the reason we do it in connection with the Espionage Act is we're dealing with a very narrow and special category of offender. That is government officials who have been trusted with access to classified information on the promise that they will follow the rules that they get trained on uh, with respect to how it is supposed to be handled. So it's not like we're saying we're opening the floodgates to go after everybody for gross negligence. We're going after a very specific category of people um, as to whom, uh, if they don't follow their obligations, tremendous damage can be done to the United States. So that's why it's of the kind of gravity of homicide, which is why, you know, you, you have the, uh, the lesser shienta requirement for it. Yeah, I actually remember that hearing pretty well, Andy, because I was sitting there thinking, I guess I guess all those reckless homicide cases that I that I did, I guess I need to let those people out of out of prison. Right. All right, let's 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 do away with the gross negligence for a second. Yep. When we hear on television that uh the president or anyone else did not have the intent to harm the country. Is that a defense or is it just the intent to possess the national defense material, the intent to not handle it according to the rules? Or does there have to be this intent to hurt the country? Yeah. See, this is this is why, Trey, I think that defense when it is trotted out as it as it reliably is when you have an incumbent administration, one of whose officials has been caught um, mishandling classified dis information. They always roll that out. And the thing is, there are offenses in this array of offenses under the Espionage Act where that would be relevant. But in the provisions under which national security officials are typically prosecuted, or at least the possibility of prosecuting them is assessed, 
That is not part of the offense. The offense with respect to those national security officials is that you have to show they have been trusted with the information and they have mishandled it knowingly. They have to have, you know, actually, well, they have to have acted negligently. But um, here's the easiest way to, to put this, because there's different offenses. There's one offense that it directs itself to willfulness, where you have to show that to the extent that the information was mishandled, it was done in a willful way. That is with with knowledge that it was wrong and the official went forward with it anyhow. And then there's the gross negligence offense that, that uh, you wisely wanted to leave to the side that I that I unfortunately injected back into this, <laughs> um, which is where the person is trusted with the information and acts in a grossly negligent way to mishandle it in some consequential, uh, some fashion that turns out to be, or could turn out to be consequential. Um, let's stick with the willfulness because that's really what you're you're asking me about. The willfulness is not accompanied by any intention to harm the United States. What we mean by willfulness is that the unlawful retention of the material or the refusal to turn it over to a government official who has uh, who has the authority to have it is intentional and knowing and that the person who engages in it in this instance a president does that on purpose knowing that it's wrongful conduct but it doesn't require showing that there was any intention to harm the country is it therefore fair to say that when we hear fill in the blank had no intent whatsoever there is no evidence that it harmed the united states it didn't he or she didn't sell it to iran or north korea that is a fabulous defense to something that hasn't been charged exactly. uh, in other words it, it, in the court of public opinion keep saying it in the courtroom it is not relevant to anything with which you are charged not until sentencing, but yes. Okay. I mean, right. we, we have a lot of these issues, right, where there are liability issues and sentencing issues, right? But to prove the offense, you don't need to get into that at all. It's it's something that I think it would be appropriate for a court to considering an imposing sentence, but that's a separate issue. All right. And we'll move on to other things I hear on television. And I got to be honest with you, Andy, I usually just watch college sports, but every now and again, my remote control gets stuck and I have to listen <laughs> to something else. Uh, or I see you on, and I usually do pause to hear what you have to say. Not, not on college sports. <laughs> not on college sports. <laughs> All right. I have heard a thousand times that the chief executive has the unfettered power to declassify anything he or she wants to declassify. Is that true? C could a chief executive declassify our, you know, our defense to a to a missile attack by North Korea? And can you do so even when your advisors oppose it? And do you have to memorialize your decision to declassify it or can you just deem it done? So you can declassify it as the president. Now, this is one of these things, Trey, I've always thought this is much more of an interesting law school exam question than it would work out. In the real world, it seems to me, a president who declassified, say, a study by the Pentagon of 
American vulnerabilities to attack by, you know, particular weapon system or particular adversary. It would be so scandalous to do that just so the president could keep it, you know, for for himself. If that was the reason for, for doing it. In other words, there's no good reason to declassify that. So the, um, the it's theoretically legally true that a president could declassify that information. But you would think it would never happen in the real world because doing that would be more scandalous than retaining classified documents. There just simply isn't any good reason to do it. But in theory, sure, the president can do that. Um, even if his advisors object, yes, he can do it, because as we as we discussed before, in constitutional law, and this is this is, uh, I think, just Justice Scalia in the Morrison versus Olson case, which was about special counsels. Uh, I think they were called uh, independent counsels back then. But, you know, he explained the constitutional theory of executive power as well as it's ever been explained. And what he explains is that uh, the only all of the executive power in the Constitution is reposed in one official, the president. And everyone else who is an executive branch official is a subordinate of the president who who exercises the president's authority at the president's pleasure. So even if the president's top advisors plead with him not to do something, he is the one with the power to do it. If he decides to declassify, he can. Now we get to the really, I, I think, very interesting legal question here on which a lot of smart, reasonable minds differ. And that is, what does a president have to do to declassify documents? Now, I believe that the Congress has the power uh, and has exercised it in the Presidential Records Act to prescribe a manner in which the president should exercise his class, his unquestioned constitutional power to declassify. So in the Presidential Records Act, what Congress said is that all of the acts of the presidency, not just with respect to national security information, but all of the official acts of the presidency are supposed to be documented. And it's the president's obligation and the White House staff's obligation to make sure that that happens, that they're appropriately documented. So I don't question, and I don't think anybody could credibly question as a matter of constitutional law, that the president has the authority to declassify anything he wishes to declassify. But I do not believe it is unconstitutional for Congress to impose a condition on the form in which that power gets exercised. Because to me, that is not an unconstitutional interference with his ability to exercise the power. It's just documenting that the power was exercised. Just so people understand, there are a lot of people who disagree with me about that. So there are a lot of people who would make the argument that because this would be too much of an intrusion on the day-to-day -day ability of the president to do what the Constitution authorizes him to do, which is execute the laws, that Congress has no business telling the president how he has to or how he can legitimately exercise that power. So that is an unsettled issue in the law. We don't have an answer to it. I have never heard up until now anybody suggest that the Presidential Records Act 
which has been on the books since 1978. So somebody do the math, but it's almost half a century at this point. I have never heard anybody suggest that that was an unconstitutional provision. But I think we will now probably get some litigation on that question. These are very important issues for us to grapple with. And these issues are worthy of devoting sufficient time and not giving short shrift to anything. All that to say, uh, I went a little long, or maybe some would say I went a lot long with that series of questions for Andy, but do not let your hearts be troubled. There are more questions and more importantly, more answers in the second half of our conversation right here on foxnewspodcast.com on the Thursday episode of this podcast. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 